I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. I was tired of hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Tell you go to the time machine? Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> The voice of young adult cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. My fabulous host, Annie Goodman, is in an undisclosed bunker location, recovering from her relapse. We wish her all the best and send her all our love. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the stupid cancer show is changing the world, one chemo infusion at a time. I'm Kenny Kane, a proud ginger, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first time and returning listeners here on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listening to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. Okay, tonight's show is an exclusive 30-minute interview with Dr. Robert Zembrowski. Uh He uh, rebuilt his body after a harrowing cancer treatment. He's now leading his patients and the public to the benefits of a therapeutic life integrating nutrition, exercise, and stress management. And in the Survivor Spotlight, author, blogger, Annie Katz. Sure to be a great show. And I'm Maureen Sweet, Manager of Programs and Operations here at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at Chemodex, so send me your questions and feedback at any time using hashtag SBRadio. All right. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Well, I just wanted to be a proud something in the intro. <laughs> okay. You're not a proud boyfriend or a proud son? Proud ginger? Proud, proud ginger prevails. Okay. It prevails. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, okay, so what's going on? We have um, a couple of quick updates for everybody out there. Um, for those of you not familiar, we are launching a mobile health app called Instapeer. Are we? Uh, coming up this quarter, maybe second quarter, uh, and it's going to revolutionize cancer support. It is the first mobile app that will do auto peer matching uh, for cancer patients and caregivers, and uh, very exciting stuff. We have a lot of friends and colleagues in the business of peer matching, but it's usually through telephone and the call centers, and that's a great system, but we feel that there's a need to hit younger people who don't like to use telephones and hit them where they're at and offer them an opportunity to connect with someone just like them on their cell phones, anonymously and privately. 
So the uh, Instapeer website was just updated uh, at instapeer.org. And we just released our, our brand new update to the masses. And you could check out that, uh, that link on instapeer.org or visiting facebook.com slash instapeer. Um, very, very cool stuff. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I was – what happened? Oh, yeah, I was, I was in the – I did my day trip to San Francisco. Never, ever, ever do a day trip to San Francisco. Didn't you do okay. one where you left at, like, 5 a.m. and you came home on a red eye? It was so bad. I should never. I'm done. I'm, I'm going to be 40. I can't deal with this anymore. I'm 23. I can't deal with it. <laughs> Are you saying you're old? Because what does that make me? By the Very way, old. my board is in the office today. Oh, that was yeah. That was the voice of someone relevant to the audit to the uh, corporation here. Gally Ward, VP of Programs. Welcome back. Thank you. How are you? Good to be in the office. What's going on? Not too much. Uh, plant well. Actually, I say that. Don't but. ever say that ever We're all again. really bored. Yeah. <laughs> That's I remember they're like this, Snapchatting all day. There's this <laughs> small event happening soon uh, that takes up just a, a little bit of my time. Yeah. Um, but other than that, we're we're I, I have nothing to do. You're bored to tears. I, completely. On the bottle. Googling all day long. Watching Patrick Dempsey reruns of Grey's Anatomy. Well, <laughs> I do that when I'm supposed to be. <laughs> Anyway, I'm not, I was in San Francisco because there's an, a group called Rock Health. They're a nonprofit organization founded, ironically, by the, one of the original chairs of Stupid Cancer San Francisco, Hallie Teco, who ran a group called Yoga Bear, which was free yoga sessions for cancer patients out of UCSF. Hmm. And she is now an entrepreneur. Rock Health is an incubator for digital health startups. And I was out there at a CEO uh, uh, conference, and I led, led a session on market analysis and understanding <laughs> how to know who your audience is and targeting them and understanding how to engage them and whatnot. Anyway, really great stuff. And I met up with an old friend named Christine Brombeck. Uh, shout out to her. She's listening to the show. Christine used to work for Hope Lab, our friends over at Hope Lab at the hopelab.org. They do amazing gamification strategies in healthcare for teenagers, amongst other really exciting, innovative things in tech and healthcare. Uh, Christine is now the director of product at Fitbit. So uh, I was very, really happy to talk to her, catch up to her, and, uh, again, a big shout-out. She's amazing. Did she strap a Fitbit on you? She asked me if I had one. I said I did, and I broke it and lost it, which is true. It's got negative miles on it. I think you it. gave it to me, right? No, 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 no. I, I got one for free at TedMed. Oh, okay. I was there, and I, I lost, like, the half of it that actually mattered. I came home with, like, a stub. I came out with the bit, not the fit part. So she said she'd get me one. She also said that we might be able to do some really cool stuff with that down the road, so we'll see what happens. Cool. Yes. Um, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, Ali, you want to talk about Leukemia and Lymphoma Society? Really kind of like nice reunion of sorts with them, with the summit? Yeah, we had a great call with them last week, and we're planning some uh, really cool th- activities with them at the OMG Summit. They're going to be one of our uh, sponsors, um, and they're going to be helping out sponsor the pool party that we're having on Thursday afternoon. Pool party. Which is just going to be insane. Yes. Fun. Um, really looking forward to that. Um, and so they're uh, one of their uh, patient advocates. I think that that's what their t- her title is. Is going to be a moderator for our caregivers panel. Is that Karen? Karen. Karen one of their senior leadership in pa- in uh, patient access and oncology. Well, I knew it was patient <laughs> access or patient A. Something. She's a volunteer. She's an intern. Exactly. <laughs> She's well, a, a wonderful person that's going to help uh, moderate a panel just for caregivers. Well, I think the reason I want to bring it up is because most people don't realize that the Leukemia Lymphoma Society was the original co-founder of the OMG Cancer Summit back in the fall of 07. Wow. Yes. That was a long time ago. was a long time ago. We were ago. under 40 back then. Actually, I'm still <laughs> under 40, so ha-ha. 
I'm not. <laughs> that was a quick jab. <laughs> I I will be happily celebrating my 42nd birthday next month. Yes, every year is a good thing. And uh, so, Maureen, you're our official chief Olympic uh, correspondent. What's going on that we should care about? You know, all of it. Um, there's a lot of great Olympics happening. I binge on it whenever I have free time, which is not often. Um, but, yeah, a lot of cool stuff in Sochi. we got figure skating, luge, bobsledding, curling. So my personal Olympics thing, actually, whenever the Olympics roll around, is to wonder what Olympic sport could I still do. Ah. Um, Aren't they like, <laughs> eight, they're like 14 year olds? Is it not say? too late? Yeah, yeah I clearly, I, I, I grew out of figure skating like 10 years ago. Okay. Um, so, so really, it's, I think it's down to maybe a sled-based sport. <laughs> Where gravity does all the work for you? Yeah, where all okay. I have to do is, like, lay down on my back and go down a tube. That looks really easy, right? right. <laughs> I think I could do curling. Because you could do curling? Curling, yeah. you can be overweight, and okay. you You're don't like, have, like, to have a whole lot of skills. stand up and whack something. Yeah, you, you just have to be able to walk ice. on ice and without... And mop the floor. Without, um, it's like wax on, wax off. You don't have to wear any special, yeah. like, gear. That's true. I That's really have that much of a skill. I'm, you can, you can wear a stupid t-shirt. <laughs> skill not required for curling. <laughs> all right, so as a casual observer, as I'm a casual ignorer, mm-hmm. uh, are all these hypes of the media where they're not prepared and they're still laying bricks and hotels have no roofs? You said that, they're eating bricks? No, they're laying they're bricks. Laying they're bricks. Like, oh, they said they're eating bricks. No, they're still paving bricks. Like They're still finishing up the like everything. They won't be done by the time the Olympics are up. They're finishing yeah, the mean, Welcome to Russia sign. I think yeah. there's, you know, there's a lot to a lot to think about. There's a clearly like the hashtag Sochi problems has been very popular. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a lot to think about in terms of the huge economic burden that is placed on a city whenever it holds a sporting event like this, be it the World Cup or the but Olympics. Didn't they have like eight years to plan? You have tons of time to plan, but how much? How many billion dollars can you throw at it? And it's it is it's really really difficult. I mean, even when it was in London, no one really talked about it. But there were cities in northern England that didn't have electricity during the Olympics because they were rerouting all of it to London. <laughs> like it it happens everywhere. This just happens to be a, a probably a more prominent example. Um, and it, it is. It's read, sad. It's difficult. I read that people show up to work on buses. They don't get paid and they leave, and then a new bus shows up, and then those people don't get paid, and it repeats itself. <laughs> That's I don't terrible. Understand. No, like they're nobody not. gets paid to get to work. Oh, that's yeah. entirely possible. Yeah. but yeah, yeah, it's. Are there any cancer survivor athletes this year? You know, that's an excellent question. I was wondering that myself. I don't know. I'll report back during week two of the Olympics. Okay. Next week. We're sending Maureen over. Yeah. All right. Reporting from Sochi next week. Fantastic. We're calling you from like a satellite phone or something like that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's kick off the show here with our first guest. We're very excited to have her on the show. Intrigued my interest. Reach out to her right away. Doctor Ann Katz is a clinical nurse specialist and a sexuality counselor at the Cancer Care Manitoba in Winnipeg. Hey. She's the author of This Should Not Be Happening, a book for and about young adults with cancer. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Dr. Ann Cass. Ann. Hey. Thank you for calling in. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show tonight. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on the show. So let me first ask you, uh, you obviously have no sympathy for us drowning in snow here in the East Coast of, of the United States, correct? I have immense sympathy for you. I really, oh, wow. really do. It sucks. <laughs> However, where I am, it's too cold to snow. <laughs> I 
I can't even imagine how cold that is. Is that true? Yeah. Are the clouds just yeah. frozen up there? <laughs> yeah, it is so cold it doesn't it doesn't snow. When it warms up a little bit, it snows. It's the worst winter ever. Oh. Is that like when you throw boiling water into the air it vaporizes? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I just don't go I just don't go outside. Have you been there your whole life or did you find yourself in Winnipeg for work? No, I'm actually from South Africa, and we immigrated oh to Canada in 1985. So we are Canadian by choice, and Winnipeg is Canada's best kept secret. But I've kind of blown it now. So, but, well, and uh, weren't you living there too? Speaking of Olympics, no, Vancouver. Oh. No, Vancouver. Vancouver. What? There was another one in Canada. I don't think it was Winnipeg, though. No. Okay. I'm, I'm, no, I'm Calgary. Clear. Calgary in 1988, I believe. That's what it was. Yeah. Calgary. Yes, in Vancouver. Very cool. Well, yeah, around I'm, about uh, when you were born, Matthew. Yeah. Well, what? No, I'm, I was born in '74. Back when it was in like <laughs> New York. <laughs> I'm teasing. No, Maureen wasn't born yet, but that's okay. I was two I years old. I watched it. <laughs> <in Denver. laughs> I was an egg. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I mean, so so I read your uh, your articles and I was really fascinated by, you know, yet another person hopping on the young adult cancer bandwagon and really trying to raise awareness for the issues we deal with. What 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 brought you into this line of work? Were you already a nurse specialist when you moved when you moved by choice to Canada? And and how did you uh, decide to start tackling this issue? I was actually I was a nurse when we first came to Canada. I had uh, I had a young child and then I had another child. And uh, when we moved to Winnipeg in 1988, um, I actually started working in HIV/AIDS and um, became really comfortable talking about sexuality. Um, I've always sort of, as a nurse, worked in non-mainstream areas. And uh, when I completed my PhD. I wanted to continue learning, and so I went and did some courses in human sexuality at the University of Guelph in Ontario, and then um, was really looking for a population that I thought could, you know, really use my expertise, which is that combination between, you know, nursing and sexuality counseling. And it kind of, I did a little bit of research, and it seemed that that given the side effects of of cancer treatment, this would be a good population. And the rest is kind of history, as as they say. Over the last couple of years, I've increasingly been seeing young people uh, with cancer, um, because I'm also interested in, in the whole fertility preservation and counseling about that, and I've been doing that. And, you know, as I delved more into the issues that young adults face, it became just so abundantly clear to me that, that young adults often have, have high levels of unmet needs on, you know, social, emotional, physical, sexual, relationship, vocational uh, issues. And um, I wrote the book. So you, you, but you had previously written eight additional books on, uh, were they all on sexual health? Um, to a lesser or greater degree. So my very first book uh, uh, was actually the first book of its kind in the whole wide world called Breaking the Silence on Cancer and Sexuality. It's a textbook for healthcare providers because there was this huge deafening silence. I mean, you know, no one was talking about this, right? And um, after that was published in 2007, I started getting emails and, and phone calls from my sex therapy and sexology colleagues and friends across the world, really, saying, oh, this book is awesome, and, you know, we're getting our, our patients and clients to buy it, which was really cool, but it was a textbook. 
Um, and so then I wrote two other books. The one is called Woman Cancer Sex, and the, the next is Man Cancer Sex. And these are books that tell in a narrative, in story form, that deal with the various sexual side effects of cancer treatment. Uh, those have been really, really popular. They're into their second printing. They've actually been translated into written Chinese. Um, and then I wrote a couple of books on cancer survivorship. I then wrote a book on prostate cancer, and these are all books for consumers, so books for patients, not for professionals. Um, and then, you know, this 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 book, um, This Should Not Be Happening, was really a labor of love. I interviewed um, young men and women from across North America, you know, listened to their stories and, and really took what they said uh, – to highlight uh, the information that I provide in this book, which is evidence-based and is really different from many books that, you know, tell the stories, those personal anecdotal stories. Um, but this is evidence-based. You know, you can trust the information in this book. It didn't, I didn't suck it out of the air, right? Um, and because uh, that's important to me as, a, as an academic and, and as a scholar and as a practitioner that, that things need to be rooted in the evidence. I'm now writing a textbook for healthcare providers to help them better provide psychosocial and supportive care to young adults with cancer. No, and again, it's incredibly impressive, and it's another sign of the times that our generation is, is really getting the recognition it needs to address the uniqueness of the underservedness that we're facing. Uh, I've been in this business for seven years, but I had cancer 18 years ago. And many of the people we still see today are dealing with the same exact psychosocial issues on sexual health and relationship management. And there's this entire lifestyle ecosystem that surrounds it. It's not really one specific issue because it stems into everything else that you're dealing with just as a young person to begin with, but let alone having a chronic disease on top of that. What, what, when you, uh, how did you find or pick the individuals that you spoke to that framed the narrative of the book? I, set, I sent out emails to various organizations and support groups. I contacted the folks at Living Beyond Breast Cancer, um, and they, you know, I mean, thank goodness for social media, right? So they put out a call on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I'm going to be uh, at the C4 YW meeting in Orlando uh, in two weekends' time where I'm going to be interviewing people. I'm going to be at o OMG 2014 uh, where I'll have a table in the exhibit hall and I'm looking to interview people. It's, it's interesting. It's a little bit harder to get hold of young men. Um, you know, I think, I think uh, perhaps there's some socialization there around not talking about issues. Um, so for, the, for this should not be happening, every time, you know, I had a phone call with a young man or, or a young man came to my office to be interviewed, I did a little happy dance. Um, the one guy was actually <laughs> thinking about coming in with a big balloon saying, it's a boy, because uh, when he called me to set up the interview, my response was, I guess, a little overwhelming. Uh, so, you know, I think people want to tell their stories. I think people want to talk about this. And ultimately, you know, despite what you can read in scholarly journals, um, it's really the experience, the stories, um, the, the knowledge that, that I as an author gain from those who are walking the walk and talking the talk. You're right. You're right. You're spot on about the, the skew in, um, in gender that we see too. We, we tend to skew about three quarters female with everything we do. And I, I do think that there is a stigma about men, but Allie, my program director, we, we kind of innovated this uh, sub 
session at the conference called Just for Guys, and it really helped, mm-hmm. I think, end stigma around them feeling yeah. comfortable being a part of a larger, you know, where they, where, where there is definitely, especially around sexual health and relationships for guys. It was a feedback yeah. that we got directly from the attendees from 2012 that when we were asking for suggestions for sessions, and they loved the, you know, the open of the sexual intimacy sessions that we had, but they really wanted a time that they could talk just themselves. And uh, we got, we gave it to them last year, and we got great feedback. Yeah, you know, and I, I think I can understand that. I think that that um, you know, guys are really are socialized not to be vulnerable um, and not to be seen to be vulnerable. And there's often a lot of posturing, right? And guys hiding their feelings and and pretending to be something that they're not. And you know, hopefully they can really let down their guard when it's just a bunch of guys. And you just need a couple to talk, right? And it gets the whole thing going. It's uh, really special. So, so all right. So, of the people in the book, you obviously didn't uh, intentionally go after specific types of cancers. But what what is the breakdown that you found uh, from the folks that you were able to to cultivate for the project? Uh, well, you know, many of the young women had had breast cancer, right? We had a couple that had lymphoma. Um, the guys, there were a couple that had acute leukemia. Um, I do not believe there was anybody with testicular cancer, which sort of surprised me a little bit. Um, so leukemia, lymphoma, um, yeah, I think that's about it, uh, which was, you know, interesting to me. No sarcoma, um, n- no testicular cancer. Um, yeah, so it was really basically leukemias. And then for the, for the young women, a lot with breast cancer. So let's take the next five minutes for the end of the um, end of the segment and talk about the book itself. What types of sure. advice have you seen? Uh, are there trends in what people say? I mean, this is obviously one of the, the biggest issues facing young adults are isolation, fertility issues, sexual health, uh, uh, like uh, insurance issues, uh, employment issues. This is not new, but what have you discovered? Like, uh, what what does the book give advice for, and what what are the people you interview? largely rally around as far as messaging and support? Um, I think the, uh, you know, the the message that I heard really loud and clear was the delay in diagnosis and real uh, frustration, sadness um, about that, 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 you know, I mean, you know, the reality is that when a young person gets sick, Cancer is really not the number one in the differential diagnosis from the primary care provider. And obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. So, you know, all these young people had had significant delays in getting a diagnosis. They knew that something was wrong and, you know, and yet it still took time. So I think that was, you know, that was an issue. Um, I think, you know, a lot of... Um, a lot of sadness and yet also a lot of courage around uh, and fear around disclosing. So, so for people who were not partnered, and this is a huge issue for young adults, as, as you know, um, you know when to when to tell someone uh, that you that you have had a that you've had cancer or have a history of cancer or you you know you're actively in treatment. So that that fear of being rejected because of the cancer or being rejected and not knowing whether it was, you know, because you had, I don't know, body odor or, you know, 
um, just weren't appealing to the person or if it was the cancer. So lots of, lots of people sort of talked about, um, you know, this is how I did it. I just put it on the table, and I, at the first time I meet someone, I say, look, this is, you need to know this. I had cancer three years ago. I'm cancer-free. I'm good. But, you know, if you can't deal with it, let's just, you know, put down the coffee or, you know, leave the movie theater or whatever um, because I don't have time to muck around about this. Um, and, you know, I think that's courageous. It's brave. Other people kind of pussyfoot around it, right? Or, you know, they wait for the second date, the third date, the fourth date, um, and sometimes encounter uh, heartbreak. So, you know, I live my life with, with great honestly, honesty. I don't beat around the bush, and, and the book really is a... You know, it's it's full frontal, right? I don't uh, use euphemisms. I lay it on the line, um, and and I think this, you know, really also is reflected in the words of of the young people and the advice that that I give in the book based on what they told me. Be upfront, be honest, be authentic, have integrity, and things will fall into place. Okay, final question then in terms of pragmatism. It's a big question, but you don't have to, you know, go into incredible detail. Uh, in terms of actually changing physician behavior to be aware of these issues, is that reasonable? Have you spoken to providers who are receptive to this idea, who can understand like age first and disease second? Um, you know, I think often the pediatric oncologists get it. Uh, when that transition to, to adult care happens, I think something gets missing. I think that uh, survivors have and have to be their own advocates, and it's really scary, right? Because because they're dependent on these care providers. But if 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 your healthcare provider is not providing you with what you need, you need to speak up. Uh, you know, you got to you got to choose if you if you are prepared to put up. You know, if you're prepared to put up with your own feelings because you're protecting someone else's feelings. I mean, I don't you know I don't think that's equal at all. Um, I think I think that it's changing. You know, I think groups such as yours um, are making a difference. I really do. You're a powerful lobby group. Um, you know, you need to be speaking to the folks at ACOG. You need to be, uh, you know, getting the word out around around the needs of this population. And 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 uh, and you know, don't shut up till you get what you need. No, I, I I agree completely, and and it is basically we're trying to make less wallflowers, if you would, by letting people know it's okay to talk to the doctor, and if you have a physician that isn't to your liking and isn't listening to you as a human being, and you happen to become more of an advocate on that realm, get a new doctor and and get a second opinion. And I I go back to a friend of mine who used to talk about how, you know, doctors are your clients. You're hiring a doctor to save your life, and if you're not happy with that doctor, you fire him and get a new one. And uh, that's really what I'm hoping. Yeah, and that's what we're talking about. I really hope that what Stupid Cancer is up to and, and what you guys are doing, again, this is such progress. We like to see this kind of progress that's raising the bar and holding the system accountable to be aware that this happens and, and they're responsible. Yep, I agree 100%. Very cool. All right, we've been speaking with Dr. Ann Cass, a clinical nurse specialist at Cancer Care Manitoba in Winnipeg. She's the author of this Should Not Be Happening, a book for and by and about young adults with cancer. And can, can we get this book on Amazon? You can get it on Amazon. It's available in soft cover. It's under $20. And there's a Kindle version, too, which I think is around $14.
even better. Okay, Amazon, this should not be happening. Dr. Ann Katz, thank you so much for joining us. I will see you. We will see you all in Las Vegas in April. Take care of yourself. Take care. Thanks so much, Matthew. Bye. Okay. Okay, let's get to the news here, Kenny. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, man. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. Have some meetups slash OMG 2014 info sessions happening in Anaheim, California, Cary, North Carolina, St. Paul, Minnesota, and Denver, Colorado. Very cool, very cool. Vegas time, folks. Vegas time. Registration for the 7th Annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults is open for business. Come to the largest young adult cancer conference in the world and join 500 of your fellow young adult patients, survivors, caregivers, activists, and advocates for an epic three-and-a-half-day event that will change your life. Epic, 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 epic. <laughs> Visit OMG 2014. <laughs> I can't do it now. I need to pedal with Echo. <laughs> Visit omg2014.org to learn more, and don't forget about the OMG Players Club, your path to a $600 travel scholarship just by fundraising for Stupid Cancer. All right, Matthew, I see you over there in your Stupid Cancer hoodie. It's always time to stock up on your Stupid Cancer gear. We've got all new products and styles to choose from. Head on over to stupidcancerstore.org and be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. All righty, Matt is your... Stupid Cancer News. I love in-studio guests. No, you get like... Personally, I hate them. Yeah. But tonight we'll make an exception. Just an exception. Tonight we're joined by the fabulous Dr. Robert Zembrowski, or Dr. Z, as I will be calling him this evening. Uh, He is uh, an adolescent and young adult cancer survivor diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma at the age of 38. He recently celebrated his five-year cancer anniversary and is launching his new book, Rebuild, with Dr. Z's body composition diet in a few weeks. Stellar guy. We had a great conversation before the show. Really looking forward to our chat tonight. Please welcome Dr. Robert Zembrowski. Dr. Z. Thank you very much. Very, very excited to have you here tonight. I was uh, really got to know you a little bit before the show and to talk a little about uh, what you're up to. And it's, it's really special. It's really important. And, again, this goes back to self-activism, self-advocating, being aware of your body, getting in touch with who you are as a human being, and not being defined by your disease. How's that? Perfect. Did I write you forward for you? You did. I, it was perfect. <laughs> I'm going to get rid of the one I have and use it. Okay. Fantastic. So let's start from the beginning. Where were you at 37 years old, and what happened to you? 37 years old, uh, previous to my cancer diagnosis? Yes. Life before cancer. Oof. I, I was, uh, had a life that a lot of people had. Uh, very busy in my practice. A lot of uh, stress fell upon me all at once. I was living on top of the, on top of the hog, if you will. Practice was the busiest I've ever been. My life was great. And your Paul, practice was? Your practice was? Oh, a, I was. I'm a practicing uh, chiropractic neurologist and nutritionist. <clears throat> so we were the busiest that we've ever been. And uh, so my world came crashing down, as uh, I think a lot of people do when they first get diagnosed and don't realize it. But uh, I had a lot of stress. I had actually someone who is, uh, who I entrusted as a friend who was uh, stealing money for heroin. 
That's a quality friend. Don't, that's a great friend. Don't so, tell Matt. Are they sharing? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so a lot of things happened all at once as far as personal things. Relationship kind of fell apart, bought big homes, put myself in a debt. Practice was really busy. I wasn't taking care of myself. And so <clears throat> I had symptoms or pains or something? Not then. Not okay. then. But uh, as, as, I, as we talk with patients now, uh, a lot of people hold feelings in. They don't express themselves. And as far as what I've seen through the research, stress is uh, – and the stress reaction in the body is a pretty bad spark for, for cancer growths and suppressing the immune system, the one thing that really is there to, to help guide us through any kind of disease. But uh, <clears throat> the stress got pretty bad for me, and uh, sleepless nights and drinking wine to try to put myself to sleep and not working out and eating junk food and kind of doing what we do when things go bad in our lives. Right. So <clears throat> uh, after the smoke cleared from all of that, um, about a year later, I started to lose some weight, and uh, one of the clothing stores that I go to, a salesman said to me, uh, Rob, are you losing weight? And, you know, with my ego, I was like, well, what are you talking about? I go, to, <laughs> I go to the gym all the time. But uh, so something resonated with me, and I did start to lose weight. And then as a few months passed by, I started to get extreme fatigue and, and, uh, and, and tired. No B vitamins, no caffeine were, were denting the fatigue. And then periodically I'd bend over, my head would feel like it was splitting open from pain. Then I knew something was wrong. <clears throat> uh, so I drew blood on myself, and nothing really showed up as far as... Is that the benefit of being a doctor? You can draw blood on yourself? <laughs> yes, it okay. is. Let's not take yes. that for granted. That's a cool talent to be able to do it legally, legally for yourself. <clears throat> so nothing really showed up there objectively. And so I said, okay, well, what else may be happening? So it was a few days before I decided to have some x-rays done uh, based on a recommendation who was a friend of mine who was a radiologist. And that's when I woke up in gushing night sweats and big swelling on the left side of my neck and my left pupil was three times the size of my right. And I said, okay, I'm now I'm dying. I need to find out what's going on. This is an emergency. So I rushed to my local radiologist who was a friend and uh, he took x-rays and said, you have a five inch tumor in your chest. Is that all? That was it. <clears throat> and so it's nothing know, special <laughs> in there. <laughs> Not a big deal. You know, <clears throat> big bump in the road. All right. So anyway, the, uh, my adventure became, my journey became, now what do I do? So every bit of fear that people go through as far as getting their quote-unquote first diagnosis of, of a life-threatening illness, I had the same thoughts, fear, life, work, what am I going to do with this, that, and the other thing, trying to get my life in order. So I, what, were you single, married at the time? Single. Okay. Yep, I was single. And uh, so I dove into the chemotherapy world into a local hospital, which... Uh, was a mistake, but uh, well, hang on. Let's go back for a second. When you when you first went to, you couldn't diagnose yourself. Just take your own blood, which is a good first step. Yep. When you first went to an actual doctor, did they understand there was actually something wrong with you? Were you like we talked about what the Dr. Cat said, late detection? Were you taken seriously? I was when the PET can when the X-ray showed and when I showed the radiographs to the local oncologist that there was a five-inch tumor in there. I mean, it was pretty obvious what the issue was. Right. So then the, the process... couldn't deny that, really. No, absolutely. <laughs> the proof is in the x-ray. But uh, then we had the biopsy, and the biopsy said it's a large B-cell lymphoma. And uh, so the treatment of choice, because my respiration had been affected, I had severe neck pain, severe head pain, was start chemotherapy. And so the day after I talked to the oncologist, not knowing how to navigate through this process, was start chemotherapy. Right. 
So I wasn't told to sort, store sperm. I wasn't told to get a port put in. I wasn't told any of that. Right. It was just go after it right now. Yeah, see you on Wednesday at 8. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> and so that process started for three months. So everything from, you know, red death and uh, mustard gas and all the things that they give you for. Hashtag Adriamycin. Yeah. Adriamycin yeah. and red death. So, <clears throat> so I started that for three months. Uh, after the three-month period, I then dove into research like nobody's business to say, did I create this? How, how did this happen? How did this happen to me? So you Dr. Google. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I became a PhD in, uh, in the re- Google research. Right. So <clears throat> based on my education, then I started to rebuild myself then, or at least I thought I was with proper nutrition, certain supplements. I swallowed everything under the planet that someone out there said can cure cancer. However, most of those things didn't work. Right. So <clears throat> did anyone at the hospital, like, did you tell anyone at the hospital, like, do you have a nutritionist on staff? None of, were there books in a library somewhere? Nothing. Nobody mentioned the thing. Knowing that I was a physician myself, nobody mentioned it. Nobody said anything about these are, these are places you can go to get information. So during the chemotherapy, as miserable the symptoms were from insane constipation to one-hour nosebleeds every morning to I couldn't feel my feet, couldn't feel my fingers. They were feet are overrated. They are. I mean, what do you need your feet for? <laughs> <clears throat> Plus, you're, you're t- you know, my fingers burned with uh, peripheral neuropathy and yeah. burning forever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So <clears throat> no advice, nothing given. They just served cookies and green jello at the oncology ward there, which put me into a rage. So that didn't help my stress levels at mm-hmm. all either. So um, I started to dive into the research of nutritional biochemistry and epigenetics and said, oh, so this is how I have to do this. So a year later, uh, I had a PET scan done on my chest, and they said, wow, this is it's benign now. I said, well, that's pretty impressive. I'm doing the right thing with vitamin C. I was actually using intravenous vitamin C for quite a long time. I heard about that, like 10,000 milligrams a day. Yep. Yeah. It's actually 10,000 milligrams, uh, 150 grams twice a week. Okay. So it's quite a bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. And there actually is some pretty decent research coming up with uh, vitamin C uh, as far as a cancer treatment. However, a year later, the PET scan lit up again. Oh, boy. I said, here we go. So I was really preparing myself for the next course of treatment, whatever it was going to be. So that included another four months of chemotherapy, according to now uh, Yale New Haven. And I said, okay, well, let's do it. Once I commit, I'm just going to do it. So it was four months more of chemotherapy. I was on, you know, 4th of July, had a brief briefcase of chemo pumped into me again at that time, sleeping with this pump pumping away, which is like, I can't believe that this is me. I just can't believe that I've had a healthy lifestyle up until a few years back, and now I'm dealing with this. Again. Again. So as Dr. Ann mentioned before, you, own, you really have to be your own advocate, and I strongly suggest people educate themselves uh, as much as possible to do that. So I did. And so the, after the chemo really didn't work again, they said, now we're going to give you the stem cell transplant, which is, again, a.k.a. medical speak for algorithm treatment of the patient. Right. Right. It's got nothing to do with me as an individual, my age, my gender, my stress levels, who I am. It's just about statistics. So I said, well, I thought about it and did a little research on my own, and I said, well, if the chemo didn't destroy what was there, how's, a, how's my brother's white blood cells, who I was going to use as a donor, going to do the job? And so they all looked at me like I was... Actually, they called me the freak there. How, how dare you question them? How dare you? <clears throat> Seeing that I did so well with the second round of chemo, as they asked, how you doing? I said, I feel great. I just, could you unplug me so I can go to the gym? They called me the freak there. Really? Yep. 
So to defy all of what people really know about it, then I became my advocate. I said, no, I'm going to talk to the surgeon and have it removed. And they said, well, big B-cell lymphoma masses or mediastinal masses aren't usually removed by surgery or treated with surgery. And I said, mine's going to. We're, we're going to do this. I'm going to die anyway, I felt, because the treatment I felt wouldn't work based on my understanding. And so the surgeon called me seven days later, and they opened me up. And so uh, like I've been a full-on giant chest. Full-on 15-inch. Rib, rib splitter, the whole thing. Yep, yeah. up through my sternum, 15 inches, big crab splitter. And uh, he took every bit of scar tissue, big softball mass full of cancer and scar tissue that was there. And that was that as far as my medical treatment, if you will. Right. So then my mission became, now what do I do? So I was on a mission to rebuild myself, like the $6 million man, bigger, stronger, yeah. faster. <laughs> yeah. So that that was my goal. Were and you fit before this? Were you working out and just I was. being relatively healthy beforehand? I was. And the funny thing, when I speak to my family or relatives, they'll say, oh, you, you know, you're always in shape and you always ate well. And I said, right, but you didn't know about the two, three years previous to what was going on before I got diagnosed, right? So, yes, that's true. However, I didn't take care of myself for a period of time. Um, and again, as I have written in the book, stress plays a major role, and I think it's underrated. It's almost coffee talk at, at uh, the coffee shop. Hey, stress kills. It's like, really? Well, how does it do that? So um, we got the surgery, and then I dove into the research to compile every bit of research out there that says, what do I do to rebuild my banged-up bone marrow? How do I bring my anemia back? How do I make my thyroid work? How do I get my testes to do a better job making testosterone and sperm, right, the whole gamut of things as you talk about? Right, like basically take your inherent immune, immune, immune system and get your biology to do what it was meant to do. Exactly, turning it right back into what it was supposed to do. And so successfully, uh, five years later, I've done that. Very impressive. And how do you know that? Is that because you just don't have cancer? Well, I know it because I see you have a post-nasal drip. We're doing something right here. Well, the post-nasal <laughs> drip is actually having, you know, every lymph node in my chest chopped out. So, uh, the, again, it, they're stupid lymph nodes. Yeah. It's stupid. <laughs> <lymph nodes. laughs> Who needs them anyway? But uh, um, I'm sorry, what's your... No, I, like, how do, you, how do you quantify wellness? <clears throat> well, quantifying wellness, again, is not just a symptom, right? If I, right. If I knew a five-inch tumor was growing there, I would have done something proactively to stop or prevent what was going on or intervene. However, uh, late-stage disease uh, is symptoms are the last thing to show up. So based on objective testing now, I can say I am absolutely victorious over cancer, and I'm not really concerned about it anymore. Right. Were there any uh, discussion about late effects? Because even getting uh, red death can lead to future lymphomas and future cardiovascular issues. It's like the gift that keeps on giving. It's just so wonderful, red death. Yes, there was no discussion of that. Okay. So any of the... the it was really quality care you're talking about. Here. It was just top-notch. <laughs> so they say a top-notch hospital for what, I'm not sure. But again, crisis care, not health care, right? What right. we're trying to do with, and even your organization is teach people health care, not crisis care medicine. So in the crisis care world, there was none of that. It's just drop the bomb and run and say, okay, have a good life. Right. Don't deal with any kind of peripheral, you know, peripheral issues. What There's are the no risks? Nothing. No, you had no counseling. There was nothing. No therapy, no social workers, nothing. Nothing. Nope. Just do you want a massage? And I said, no, thanks. And this was five years ago? Yep. Wow. At one of the top cancer institutions, if, if they call it the top. So, uh, Again, as, as Dr. Ann said, I really think people have to be their own patient advocate, their own personal advocates to educate themselves, go in fully armed, and say, this is what I think. As you said, you're, you're, I'm hiring you, and if you don't do the job I need, you're fired. Yeah. 
So let's talk about the book then, Rebuild, uh, Dr. Z's Body Composition Diet. We've had numerous broadcasts and, and, and programs and workshops and conferences that involve nutrition. And what we found, and Alec can comment on this with Kenny, I mean the whole team, we've been able to like really whittle down the, the, crack, the crack pots and find, sift through the flour and find the authentic people who have, actually have an understanding of the pragmatism involved and that it's like juice, kale, or die people can just go over here and the here's how you pragmatically go to your farmer's market if you have one or order online or, or manage a, you know, a, a, a fixed income and still eat well, like these real-world solutions. What, so what are, what are the top things that you've found uh, that, that sort of relate to most people is, is, is in terms of body composition? Is it alchemy? Is it alkalinity? Is it what you stick in your face? Is it how you feel every day? Is it exercise? You know, the funny thing is that the key to being fit, I mean, the key to being healthy is also the key to being fit. So body composition really, as we've defined it, is just the sum terms of all the systems working together, all the nutrients controlling your genes, uh, you know, everything from, from uh, lean muscle tissue to body fat, your chemistry, the food that you eat, the stressors that you endure, all kind of comprise what we call body composition. And so uh, what we see with people or the guide that we try to give through the book is saying, <clears throat> if you've gone through it, these are the parts of your landscape that you need to investigate, right? Again, I, I, I hate the word remission because cancer doesn't hide behind the liver. So if you don't resolve the thing that created it, per perhaps there's a potential to bring it back. And so rebuilding people with changing your body composition really is about finding out what, what may be the key factors in you if they are objective and measurable, they may spark something else. And so the process of, of rebuilding with, with the body composition is really teaching people all the tips and tools other than the black and white juice, kale, and so forth. We get it, but how? You know, again, in my practice uh, or pa patients have requested so many times, how does this work? What am I doing? Why do I need to eat cruciferous vegetables if I have breast cancer? And so what we try to do is dispel the myths and really give people hardcore information, but things that are easy to use from inexpensive ways to look at things to, uh, uh, you know, simple ways to prepare things in order to make life easy for them to make their rebuild easy. Maureen, you a question? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, plenty of them. And so you have listed here five things that you can do to kind of get past chronic. Do you mind if I like walk through them really quickly? No, go, absolutely. Okay, so just for everyone listening, um, you list health and, healthful nutrition, if I can talk, managing stress, eliminating toxins, um, keeping it moving or exercise, physical activity, and getting enough sleep. Um, so out of those, I think a couple of the hardest ones, like we talk about nutrition a lot, um, but like managing stress is really hard, especially, you know, like getting, just like starting that and like getting into like meditation and those kind of practices. Like what are your first steps for, for like that one specifically? Well, I think the biggest thing uh, that I see with people when they say, well, how do I manage stress is one, you have to deal with the stressor, mm -hmm. right? So whatever the stressor may be, whether it's family, work, relationship, money, whatever it may be. It, it, it's hard to like, you can't shoot your spouse, right? So it's hard to sure. say, or maybe you can, but <laughs> you, can't, you can't get rid of that sometimes. So what we try to do is say, if you, if you can learn how to manage the stressor, then these are things you can do to manage the stress reaction inside the body so that reaction doesn't become destructive. Mm -hmm. You can't get rid of stress. It's, right. it's impossible. Whether it's out in the cold temperature stress or it's an emotional stress, you'll never, ever get rid of it. But what we try to do is teach people how to manage the reaction of stress in the body so it doesn't destroy the immune system 
which can promote cancerous growth or heart disease or something else. Mm -hmm. And so that's guiding people through, you know, again, I I don't do all of this in in my practice, but we recommend to people, we recommend to professionals that are really good at helping people not only deal with the stressors or manage the stressors, um, but help reduce that reaction in the body. Yeah. Again, you can't get rid of the stress, but we can make the body stronger to deal with it so you don't get sick. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You also talk about, um, so you, you mentioned earlier, like, dietary supplements and things like that and how you popped everything into your body as that you could. Um, and you do recommend some. Like what, are, like, what are some of the good supplements, the things that we can actually be taking that aren't, like, quack drugs? And are they universal for everybody? Uh, that's a, that is the key. Right. So, you know, as you know, patient-centered approach or individualized health care is really where the future is, where we now take the individual and say, well, what specific do you need? Mm-hmm. What's your age? Are you 20? Are you active? Are you a woman or you're a man? Are you, you know, there's a lot of factors involved with that. And when people mm-hmm. call and say, well, what kind of supplements do I need? I have no idea. Right. So it's very individualized to, to the person, to the case, to what's going on with you. Are you still suffering from thyroid problems after chemotherapy? Do you still have constipation? Are you still getting peripheral neuropathy? So it really just depends on the person, the individual. But vitamin D is important. We're the only mammals that don't make vitamin C in our body anymore. That's really important to fight cancer. B vitamins help shut down certain genes. Uh, probiotics to rebuild the gut. You know, these are just generalizations. But this is things that we've all heard of. But it becomes, um, uh, Matt, as you said, it's very unique to the individual. And sure. so there's no one supplement fits all situations. We mm-hmm. give generalizations, and then we have people try we, try to give you tools on how to search for what you specifically need. Yeah, makes sense. And again, so, all right, so let's talk pragmatics then. So mm-hmm. This is not covered by insurance. Right. <laughs> no, that, that's a very real yeah. issue. And it's it, a real it issue. It goes back to our country's stagnant ridiculousness of, it health, is. of the sick care system. So how do you work with, and you were talking with me before the show, you have a lot of cancer patients coming to you. Do they pay out of pocket? Do you work with them on, do you take co-pays? Is there any policy or platform in the country that lets, there, there's some kind of reimbursement for you? The only thing that I can make, uh, the, the only policy that I've ever seen as far as insurances are like med pays, where you, you get to put certain money aside, if you will, as like a credit or a credit card kind of thing, and they allow you to draw money away from that to pay for a nutritional counseling, whatever it may be that you're looking to do. Right. But as far as, you know, hardcore CPT codes, diagnosis, pay from insurance, none. Right, exactly. None. But you do that in practice, though, right? We do. And yeah. I make, you know, again, where we are in Fairfield County, we make it affordable because I know what it feels like to be beat up and, you know, uh, be brought down to the, to the verge of, of, uh, of life here. But I get it. So I work with people in all financial matters or levels or it doesn't matter to me. I just want people to be well and not experience what I went through. So when you were going through the stick everything in your body uh, to see if it worked, and, and maybe you did, then did you go like the crazy route, like Ayurvedic? Not, and I don't mean crazy Ayurvedic, like Ayurvedics and, um, and, and organics and the bioorganics and like drinking your own urine and crazy. Just <laughs> going like to the monks on top of the hill. For the coffee enemas. Coffee enemas. Well, yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't give myself a coffee enema nor drink my urine. Okay. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> actually that is somebody's, That's a little telling. Yes, that is a thing though. That is a thing. <laughs> it is a thing. No, however, I read up on it seeing if there's any, again, is there any truth to any of this stuff? And the majority of it is no. 
So I, I did. I, I based on fear. What do people do when they're fearful? They'll do anything. Right. right. That's why the pharmaceutical companies, you know, they save lives. But they're, they're, the marketing to people is all fear-based. It's not a love healthcare motto. And so, in a fear-based, you know, paradigm, it's take this or you will. No, it's, it's are you sad? Take a pill. But if you do that, then you're going to be running to the john all day, and you're going to get eczema, and your hair will fall out, and you're, you'll lose your limbs. I mean, it's kind of crazy, but it's all fear-based. Well, side effects may include death. <laughs> I'll, I'll take a box of those. Exactly. So, yes, I actually did, based on fear, saying, let me be my own experiment. And I actually was my own experiment. So I can talk from second, first-hand experience, rather, that the majority of the things that you hear or read without real clinical randomized control studies from, from reputable nutrition companies, it's a farce. All right. So let's then talk about what actually did work for you. So as you mean supplements are just the whole right, protocol? Right, right. So nutrition, like what did you stop eating or start eating? What do you do today that you didn't do back then? What, what nutritional supplements, like what GNC stuff do you buy? That kind of, like what, what do you buy at the store? So I don't I don't buy any supplements at a store. Um, just as a uh, a doctor with with a private practice, I have access to kind of research based products with clinical research research behind it, as opposed to a vitamin shop or GNC. Is that like the nutraceutical industry, or is that separate? No, nutraceuticals are okay. just a fancy name for supplements. Oh, okay. So you're right. It is, <laughs> yeah. it is it is part of the supplement world. However, there are reputable companies that prove what they say. Uh, what their supplements do that aren't like one a day <laughs> or the <laughs> yeah, Flintstones. Hey, hey, the Flintstones. That was a great, uh, that was a great product. I may uh, or I'm may just, not just still take a chewable Flintstone. <laughs> you are not saying that right now online. Right I may actually be saying that today. Chewy gummy bear I do, I do vitamin gummies. Two fruit snacks a day. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Vitaballs. I remember when the vitamin gumballs came out. You got to <laughs> chew it for 10 minutes to get all of the vitamins out. Yeah, those were found in nature, and that's what we recommend, right? <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Subsequently, it tastes like shit. Exactly. So, so is it big in vitamin C, vitamin D? What, what, what do you take that you don't get from food? So um, that is a great question. So I don't think people get enough vitamin C in their diet to get it through food. I don't think people can uh, take enough cod liver oil and sit in the sun enough to actually raise their vitamin D, especially when you're dealing with a chronic disease, cancer, or you're rebuilding yourself from cancer treatment. I think that there needs to be some adjunctive therapy. And I think vitamin D is a big one that's kind of underutilized. And so uh, vitamin D is a big one. Vitamin C is a big one. Essential fatty acids are pretty important as long as it's from a reputable company. Uh, we do a lot of work with enzymes. So I work with uh, enzyme therapy with anti natural anti-inflammatories in them. And so what I try to do is regulate gut function, digestion. Um, I try to keep the person's energy levels up and keep their oxidation levels or free radical damage down, and that's done through antioxidants, plant-based enzymes, help heal the gut through different nutrients and so forth. And I guess the whole idea with supplement is actually to reduce inflammation too. Well, that's, I, that's a common theme I keep hearing across the board, whether, whether they are quacks or not. Is inflammation is the root of most diseases. <clears throat> and it is. And the funny thing is when, when you mention the word inflammation, what does it drum up in your head? What's the picture you get when I say inflammation? Advil. <laughs> True. <laughs> But the picture of inflammation really means like something swollen, a pimple, a swollen ankle, right, a sunburn. And that is an inflammatory process, but what people don't know is a lot of the diseases that happen out there are driven by the immune system, and the immune system creates what we call inflammation. 
So white blood cells spit out these chemicals called cytokines, which are messengers that recruit other cells in the body to make the war happen. And so inflammation is a big thing. The number one reason we become inflamed internally from our immune system is crap food. Processed, nutrient-deprived de- nutrient food, like pizza rolls. Yes. <laughs> God bless Geno's. Yes, exactly. So <clears throat> what are the worst foods then? I mean, I thought of like fast food, and we know like deep-fried burgers and stuff. What are really bad foods? Oh, boy, here like we go. Meat, cheese, dairy. Are you, <laughs> are you like vegan? No, I am not vegan. I think grass-fed beef, bison, uh, you know, uh, wild-caught seafood is absolutely super nutritious for us. And I think as a human species, we should be eating it. I'm not vegan. Good. Um, you but, have to leave if you were. And I, t- I totally <laughs> get it. And if that's, uh, if that's a way that you believe is, is appropriate, well, good for you. But, again, I have my understanding. But there's three and a half foods that kill as far as what I've put in the book. You guys ready? Okay, go I'm ahead. not going to like I'm this. A, I'm really you're not, scared. You're not going to like it. Everything I, I get, I yeah. probably ate everything. If one of them is pizza, I have to kill you. <laughs> okay, grab the door. So three foods that kill, bread, dairy, sugar. No. Three and a half, I'm sorry, partially hydrogenated vegetable oil. So I just finished a book on heart disease. And actually the chronic disease mechanisms in certain cancers and heart disease and obesity, diabetes, all have similar uh, roots, if you will, which is, again, as you mentioned, inflammation. But the things that we eat every day, people don't realize, is one of the biggest issues for us, like dairy. Again, every time I bring up dairy to lecturing to 200 people at Norwalk Library a couple of weeks ago, people are in fisticuffs because they just don't want to hear it. Right. But, again, milk is, uh, you know, if you're not drinking the breast milk of a human, you shouldn't be drinking it because it's a food source for a human. It's been a while. For, an, <laughs> for a species, exactly, and the, 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 the compounds and the things in it people don't realize are growth promoters, especially with cancer, insulin growth factors, insulin, high estrogen levels. Casein is a destructive protein from an animal source, and we don't really realize it, but we, and we don't want to face the, the, the fact that the foods that we're eating causing, are causing could cause some of our health issues. And the research on grains and white refined flours, dairy, and white sugar, but really, it's, it's, it's destructive. Right, so bread is a big net. Yes, it is. Like, cause you could have like spr- sprouted, you know, like whole grain, like dirt bread that's in the freezer, <laughs> and you could have Wonder Bread. Okay. Yeah. By the way, Wonder Bread not a sponsor. Okay. But oh, at yeah. the end of the day, I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, is it all bread? Is it all? I mean, cause human beings have evolved to an agrarian society, and that has. It, anthropologically has extended our life, no? Well, we, we, we realize that it's a food source that provides us sometimes with nutrients depending on how it's prepared. But if you look at all food sources like grain, depending on how it's prepared, could either work for us or not. Right. And as evolutionary research is saying, as far as the patterns of eating 10,000 years ago, we didn't eat bread back then. We didn't eat grains. That's not what was happening. And we certainly didn't mash it into a, into a powder, throw some yeast in it, sugar and water, and make bread with it. That's not what was happening. Right, we had matzah. <laughs> yeah, and that's true. Yeah. But uh, even back then, if you think about celiac disease as an inflammatory autoimmune disease, why right. do people get it? It's because people are having a reaction to the proteins found in grains. Why do people have lactose intolerance? Because we're not supposed to be drinking the milk sugar as adults. Is anybody in this room water intolerant? Exactly. And so we realize that (laughs) if you have a reaction, a severe reaction to a food source, we actually have to look at it and say, is this a detriment to us or not? And the thing that that chimes uh, or or rings a bell with conversations with people in the office, they say, well, I've never had a problem with this stuff before. 
I said, I realize, but many cancers, heart disease, diabetes, these are long-term growths or dysfunctions, metabolic dysfunctions that occur over a period of time. So you can't pinpoint your finger to any one situation or any one food source, but multiple food sources that can create inflammation sets the landscape for dysfunction. Then you don't sleep, you're not exercising, you're not getting enough nutrients in the diet to control cells, and all of a sudden we develop, quote, unquote, what we call a diagnosis. Right, so it really is about resetting or rebuilding your landscape, and the three and a half foods that kill, I hate to tell you, that's what the majority of the that research That was all pizza, you know that. It was <laughs> yes, all it pizza. Is. It is, pizza, pizza. Yeah. All right, so let's use anecdotes, which are irrelevant, but let's use them anyway. George Burns, about 101 years old, smoked, drank, ate like crap his whole life. Mm-hmm. How did he live that long with no disease? My mother's mother, my grandmother, never had an illness in her life. Never once went to the hospital. She was born, gave birth to my mom. The only two times in 97 years she was in the hospital, died of old age. Ate ribbonous and fat and Eastern European foods her whole life. What's that about? Genetics. Okay. Not, no, not genetics that, they, that you got your eye color from them. Genetics and how their genes respond to the internal environment. Right? So sometimes the genes within you as an individual will only become dysfunctional when they're ready to become dysfunctional. If I smack inflammation into the gene all day long, all day long, some people's genes can handle it. Some people can't. And so there's no way to say, well, my father ate crap his whole life and lived to – he's 84 now. Well, that's him. Right. But that's what makes people unique and genetically unique, and that's what makes us all individuals. And so statistics are about groups of people, not the individual, and that goes for cancer treatment, cancer therapies, how we deal with it afterwards, the time of life you know, gender and so forth. So it is, you know, I hate to use the word genetics because everything is, oh, it's genetics, but genes will never do anything until they are called upon or told to do something. Right. And so some people's genes won't be affected by smoking and junk and crap and food, and some don't. Right. You know, somebody else may just take a whiff of somebody's cigarette and all of a sudden develop lung malignancy. I mean, right. we can't pinpoint our finger on any one thing. My, my father's actually in the chat room and he corrected me. That my grandmother, who lived in 97, never ate fat. She lived on baked potatoes and steam. <laughs> that's, a, that's good nutrition. That's yes. a good thing. All right, so I'll, I'll challenge you on this then because if we're talking about every person is a snowflake, right? Yep. And that vitamin D may be needed for somebody and not for someone else. Maybe bread is good for someone and not good for someone else. Okay, so let, let's go with it. So we'll, we'll just, let's use vitamin D. Wonder Bread. Oh, Wonder Bread. Yeah, the worst oh bread possible. Did you guys roll that up and throw it at your teachers or at least make little balls out of yeah. it, little square dice and throw that's it? Our gen- that's our generation, not their generation. Oh, I mean, right. I've, I've rolled it up, but I don't know if there are any teachers present. I'm sure on, <laughs> I'm sure on the net there's a video how to make uh, Wonder Bread balls. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> I had a Wonder Bread um, lunchbox. I never <laughs> ate Wonder Bread, but I had a lunchbox. Do not mess with Captain America lunchbox. No, 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 clearly. <laughs> So if you were to take, let's just take your first comment about vitamin D. We know inherently that humans need vitamin D. Right. It does a lot of things in the body, controls inflammation, controls cell growth or not, whatever it may be. We know we need that. The level at which vitamin D is needed to control your genes or regulate function in you is completely unique to you. Right. So we can make a sweeping statement by saying everybody needs vitamin D or at least get some sunlight, whatever it may be. Right. Right. We do need that. <clears throat> how much you need is completely unique to you. When it comes to Wonder Bread, <laughs> Wonder Bread and whole grain bread, it's a completely different beast. 
totally processed, totally refined, totally destructive, as opposed to something like a whole grain or whole flour or, or uh, seeded bread, which does have some nutritional value to it, but we know that... But they're Monsanto seeds. You know, Monsanto, <laughs> they are really Not doing a sponsor. <laughs> Nor am I. <clears throat> but again, if we look at grains itself, there are, based on the research, proteins and grains, regardless if it's refined or whole, that may not react with us individually and in our digestion. Okay, Maureen? Yeah, so you just mentioned that, you know, the level that I need of a certain vitamin is completely unique to me. Um, and that makes sense, but how do I figure that out? Like, how do, do I just pay attention to my body, moderate levels? And Increase doses so you pass that? out. Yeah. <laughs> just keep going that's until Matt's I can get <laughs> Let me clarify, that's Matt's recommendation. That's my Thank you. <clears throat> so, again, it, it really becomes about objectives, and this is what we try to teach as patient advocates or the, as tools and tips that I've written in the book. This is what you should look for for yourself. Right, so when you're looking at vitamin D levels, what should you look for? How do you look for it? What should the levels be in a therapeutic range for most adult humans? Mm -hmm. And so that's what we we recommend: looking at certain blood work, what to look for, and so forth. Okay. And then you titrate or supplement based on your need. Okay. You may need a little bit more vitamin D than than say matter or or someone else. And so you have to do it just according to your need. Mm-hmm. And the nice so, thing so is, it's there, best to like see a nutritional counselor about this. It's like, there's no way for me to just kind of. Figure we're going it out. to Darian. <laughs> yes, I'll come up to Darian. We'll we'll help rebuild all Great. of it. Great, cool. See you tomorrow. <clears throat> but no, so I, if someone and I, I strongly recommend somebody who's well versed in nutritional biochemistry, not just mm-hmm. somebody who says oh, I can do this or I can tell you about vitamin D. Uh, no. Yeah. So anybody who that you know is well versed in looking at this stuff, I think would be the best place to start. Okay. Great. All right, so we're running out of time. I want to talk about the fatty acids, like omega-3s and krill oil and stuff like that. What, what are your thoughts on... on... <clears throat> um, are we talking about fish oil from this country or... Well, not Amazon.com fish oil. <laughs> not a sponsor. <clears throat> <laughs> you're protected. You're protected. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, again, you know, essential fatty acids, there's different essential fatty acids. If we look, just, uh, look at the omega-3 fatty acids or the marine fatty acids... They seem to have the highest anti-inflammatory properties. Now, I know a lot of uh, uh, people that, uh, individuals who will really push the plant-based diets and say there's plenty of essential fatty acids in plant-based foods, but not really. And so when we look at essential fatty acids or omega-3s, the best places, marine sources, because they have the highest EPA and DHA, Right. those are the anti-inflammatory components of oil. You're not going to drink a bottle of uh, cod liver oil in a day but maybe for you, a couple of teaspoons would be beneficial to get the essential fatty acid and the D in there. Right. But that would be determined on an individual basis, and I would take it until I pass out and then go down a notch. You would take it until you get explosive diarrhea, and then <laughs> you would... No, but, but in all seriousness... I call those Thursdays. <laughs> you would take... You don't want to know. <laughs> you would take the supplement just as a basic guideline. Right. There, there are analysis of red blood cell membrane integrity. In other words, you can check the amount of essential fatty acids that are embedded into the membrane of a red blood cell if you really want to get really specific with it. Right. There really is cool testing that you can do to, to tweak yourselves or kind of get a sense of, wow, this is what I need to do for me as an individual. Right. All right, so I'm looking at your book here, and you're pretty buff. Um, <laughs> were you this buff before you were sick? I... Perhaps. Or are you this buff because you have no kids? 
Are you inferring that? <laughs> well, I didn't, I, I, I didn't give birth, so I'm assuming <laughs> that. Uh, I'm, I didn't give birth, so I'm assuming that I can have abs like that without giving birth. <laughs> but no, I, I actually just to to let people know that no matter how devastating your diagnosis is or was or what you've been through, you can rebuild yourself and bring yourself to a place that perhaps you weren't before. Whether you took it into a place that I did, that's completely up to you. You're an individual. You decide. But I took it upon myself because I wanted to show that these principles work. And so they work. Do you have any lingering side effects of your experience? So Besides this, this non-lymph node drip or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> The post-nasal drip because all my lymph nodes are gone? Yes. So, um, Best side effect ever, by the way. Isn't it? It's yeah. crazy. The only thing that I could say that as far as residual effects, uh, I was skiing this past weekend. For you skiers out there? Uh, at, in uh, Vermont. And as cold as it was, I never had like a rain nod type of phenomenon in my limbs where half of your finger turns black because of a lack of blood flow. Right. And so in my, the bottom of my foot in my left hand, ever since the chemotherapy, that's kind of the biggest thing that I've had to deal with. Circulatory? Yep. Okay. Yep. As far as the thyroid and testosterone levels and sperm checks and all, all those things have really come back to perfect normal, thank goodness. But uh, that's really it. I notice once in a while a little weakness in my left foot when I'm running or I do something because I, I think I had some nerve damage on that left side. Right. But that's about it. Okay. Wait, Kellington? Uh, no, the old Haystack Mountain near Mount Snow. Very nice. Uh, I skewed the front four at Mount Snow. Nice. Um, uh, and then uh, <laughs> that was last week. <laughs> Wait a minute, you skied? I skied from the age of three to twenty-two. What happened? Come on up to Vermont. It got well, expensive. <laughs> he started thinking about having kids. I skied Brody, Bromley, <laughs> Stowe, awesome. Mount Snow, Killington. Um, I mean, we started. Everyone starts at Hunter. That's down here. <laughs> or, or ski sundown, right? Yeah, exactly. Or Jack Frost in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yes. Remember that. It, it's phenomenal up there. It was a lot of fun, but it was just remarkable when I pulled my gloves off. And all I can think about really just saying, I never had this before until I had Vincristine and Red Death and Cyclophosphamide right. and uh -huh. you know, mustard gas. It's like, wow. So as far as residual, I could live with that. Okay. So final question. Allopathic medicine and this, I wouldn't call it homeopathic, but traditional like, like human being medicine. Like, like what, what would you call what you do? Functional medicine. Okay. Functional medicine versus allopathic. <clears throat> Still complementary or completely divergent? Uh, complementary. Obviously, you know, drugs save lives, and it would be kind of foolish to say that nobody needs a drug and nobody should have these procedures. If it's going to save your life to get you into a new place, then use it or do it. But functional medicine is really a patient-centered approach which focuses on improving or finding out things about your landscape that allopathic medicine can't to find out where the key dysfunctions are, whether it's insulin for colon cancer or high estrogen or something uh, that's overlooked by the allopathic world. Right. But they'll never acknowledge it because the FDA won't approve it. There's no money in it. Right. Exactly. Sad but true. All right. Well, on that depressing note, <laughs> we're glad you're alive. Five Thank years you. later. Congratulations on surviving stupid cancer. We've been talking with Dr. Robert Zembrowski, the author of Rebuild, Dr. Z's Body Composition Diet, a fabulous uh, would you, a physician. Yes. Okay. I, I don't know whether, you know, MD versus... PhD versus whatever physician. Yes, yep. exactly. <laughs> really inspiring story. Thank you so much for joining us live in studio here on the Stupid Cancer Show. Dr. Z, everybody. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Allie, any final comments? Because you won't be here for next Monday's show about the conference coming up. Ellie's watching the weather report. <laughs> I am a little nervous about the weather report. 
Um, the the uh, conference is going to be awesome, um, and we have a new um, mode of information that's going to be coming out starting tomorrow um, called Follow Me to OMG. Uh, and it's going to have it's going to be a one place shop to find all kinds of information about the conference. Um, a little bit more detail than you'd find on the website. There will be a link from the website to this blog, uh, and it'll have lots of information about the activities, the sessions, answer questions that you might have, reasons to go, hear from other people, all that kind of great stuff. So look for notifications on Facebook and Twitter and everything tomorrow about that. Fantastic, awesome stuff. Well. A great show, as always. I'd like to thank our guests. And now it is time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, <laughs> you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, our 295th broadcast. We always love fun. Hi there, Kenny. I'm broken. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking your stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our guests tonight, Dr. Ann Katz and Dr. Robert Zimbrowski. Join us next week when we tackle a very serious issue, bereavement. Single fathers of cancer. Bereavement of cancer is one of the most difficult parts of this horrible disease. Join us for a bereavement roundtable where we will be talking to Dr. Justin Yop, assistant professor at UNC School of Medicine's Department of Psychiatry, and Matt Herring, co-founder of Young Cancer Spouses, a bereaved husband himself, about coping with loss of a loved one due to cancer and the Survivor Spotlight on blogger Cindy Gross. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk iTunes podcast and blog talk radio. Check out the archives at stupidcancershow.org anytime. And remember, folks, it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Annie Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, Allie Ward, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. I think that thanks. covers it. Yeah. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week live at 8 p.m. Good night, folks. Good night, everybody.